Well, I'm, I'm uh, glad to be back in uh, the Word. We are in 1 Corinthians. If, uh, if you are just joining us this week for the first week, we just began last week a new series. Uh, if you're new to the church, what, what we believe in is that God speaks to us through His Word, and the primary way that, that we receive that is when we simply open His Word and we go through section by section, chapter by chapter. So, we began last week Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, written to a first century church, but as we're seeing, written to us as well. And last week we went through the first nine verses of chapter one. We're going to pick it up and read verses 10 through 17 today. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, a paper Bible, or on your phone, turn to 1 Corinthians. You go through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, then it's 1 Corinthians, or we'll have it up on the screen as well. Uh, Listen why I read uh, God's Word spoken to the Christians at Corinth, spoken to you and me. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The the series title that uh, I introduced last week is A Beautiful Mess, and that really speaks to the church in Corinth. The the, the church in Corinth was a beautiful mess. It, It was a mess because here just a couple years into its founding, even though it had been founded by the Apostle Paul himself and had been under his, uh, his high level of teaching for its first 18 months, just a couple years into the life of the church, they are already struggling with people dividing around certain leaders. They're already struggling with, with conflict over personal preferences, over rights. They're already struggling with the toleration of, of immorality. They're already struggling with, with apathy towards the struggling marriages in, in their church body. They're struggling with tension between men and women, men and women failing to value each other. They're struggling with the misunderstanding and and the misuse of spiritual gifts. Ultimately, they're struggling with a loss of focus on the gospel. They've gotten distracted by, by lesser things. Like I said last week, the story of the Corinthian church is to some extent the story of every church. You read through the other letters of the first century churches, they had their struggles, they had their messiness too. And every church I've ever been a part of, they have their struggles and they have their messiness too. Every church is messy. Why? Because we're messy. 
We struggle with sin. And so when we come together as the church, what do we do? We we bring the messiness of our lives and and our family backgrounds and our our situations in life. We bring all that together. And the church is messy because the gospel is intended to reveal our messiness. It's the gospel that, that does not highlight people who have everything together, which really doesn't exist. It's the gospel that says you are a mess, but Jesus meets you in the middle of your messiness. Jesus transforms you in the middle of your messiness. And the beauty of the mess is something happens when God brings together all of us with our individually messy lives together, even in the friction of that, even in the additional additional messiness of that, The beauty of the gospel is God accomplishes something, meeting us in our messiness, transforming us in our messiness that cannot happen to us individually if we're at home watching TV on our own. In fact, when I think of people who, and I I struggled with this at one time, who look at the church, any church, and say the church is filled with hypocrites, I would say you don't understand what the church is all about. If yes, if you view the church as people coming and presenting they have it all together and their lives are all clean, you're right. But that is not what the church is all about. That's not what the Bible portrays the church is all about. The Bible portrays that the church is a place for messy people. I've been in many other realms in this, in this world, in the legal world, and in the business world, and the messiness is there too. It's just no one wants to deal with it and talk about it there. But the church is a place where we can come and we can be honest about our messiness because we know the gospel of Jesus Christ meets us right in the messiness of our marriages and our relationships and our families and our struggles. And we come together under the power of the gospel and we are transformed in the messiness of our lives. So it is a beautiful mess. And and Paul begins the main body of of this letter in verse 10. Those first nine verses are setting out hope that it's a mess, but it is a beautiful mess. And now he launches into the mess there, which I think we will soon be able to identify with. He begins in verse 10 with an appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a strong exhortation, an appeal. It's made in the authority of the, of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, don't be bothered by brothers. That Greek term there is gender inclusive. It's how Paul typically refers to men and women who, are, who make up a church. Really what he's saying here is, I appeal to you, church. This is an appeal to every person who considers themselves part of the church there. And it's, uh, it's, it's not insignificant that this appeal comes so early in his letter. Normally in Paul's letters, like in Romans, he spends a number of chapters teaching, laying out doctrinal instruction. And then, in, like in Romans chapter 12, he finally gets to his appeal. How should you live in light of this truth? But here in 1 Corinthians, unlike any other letter, he begins his appeal right away. Why is that? Because what they were struggling with is not primarily doctrinal issues. What they were struggling with is interpersonal issues, interpersonal conflict and relationships. And that's been my experience in the different churches that I've been part of. Very rarely where there is church tension, where there is church conflict, is doctrine, is is theology at the heart of that conflict. In almost every case, it's interpersonal. 
in almost every case is it something similar to what the church in Corinth is facing. And that's the case here. Verse 11, there is quarreling among you. That, that word doesn't probably carry the full strength of it that, that, that he, he writes in the Greek here. That, that word means not just disagreement. It means disagreement loaded with emotion. It means strife, hot dispute that where the emotions are engaged. And that often happens in relationships where we go from the issue that we disagree about to how we feel about that, and, and the issue becomes wrapped in all of our emotions and our emotional reactivity. And that's the kind of quarreling that he's speaking about here. And he gets to what the heart of this quarreling is in verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He's not talking about a couple people here having an individual dispute. He's talking about the practice that had developed in that church community of people developing unhealthy loyalties to their favorite teacher, to their preferred preacher, to their favorite leader, and forming really informal factions around that person. For example, there was a faction of people in the church there that were loyal to Paul. I follow Paul. There were people who honored Paul's role. He was the one who planted that church. He's the one who did the foundational teaching that got that church growing. He's probably the one that had a direct uh, impact on leading many of the people who made up the church to faith in Jesus Christ. And so many people look to Paul as their spiritual father, the spiritual father of the church, maybe their spiritual father if he had a part in leading them to Christ. And they, they, they attach their loyalties to him as their spiritual father. Who, let me ask you this, who is the spiritual father in your life? Is there, is there a pastor, perhaps, whose who's preaching you sat under when you, when you first began to really recognize who Jesus is as Savior and Lord, and you were really impacted by that? Maybe you came to faith under that pastor's preaching? Was it the leader? Was it the, the man or woman who, who actually shared the faith of the path to come to faith in Christ with you and, and God used so significantly to bring you into the faith? Was it the pastor of the, the church? Maybe you've been part of a church plant or you've been part of a church when it went through a period of tremendous growth and, and God used a particular pastor or a particular leader to really instrumentally in that process. Who is the spiritual father in your life? That, those, those men and women are, are a blessing to us. They're, they're a gift from God. They have a special role in our lives. So it is natural for us to develop a certain loyalty to them, but that can go too far. That's what was happening is in Corinth. That can go too far when we look at that person and say, they are my spiritual father, they are my spiritual mother, and, and they are the ones that I listen to and no one else. It is possible for you and me to develop an unholy devotion to godly men and godly women. And that's what was apparently happening, at least with a faction of people there in Corinth. There was another faction we read that said, I follow Apollos. Now, Apollos, you have to get the backstory by reading Acts. As you read the Acts of the Apostles, particularly chapter 18, what you find out is 
Apollos was, was a man from Alexandria in Egypt that was a, a center of learning. He, so he obviously was a very educated, learned man. And in Acts 18, we read that he came to faith and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And, and God, God did some amazing work in him as he came to faith, blending in that learning and that education to make him almost instantly a powerful speaker. Acts 18 says that Apollos quickly became a bold and eloquent teacher. So it was natural when this bold and eloquent teacher came to Corinth, which he did, that that people were captivated by his teaching and his preaching. It, It was natural even that people started to say, you know, I like his preaching better than I like Paul's preaching. Robertson and Plummer say that that Paul's preaching was rough and burning whereas Apollos' preaching was more refined and polished. He was, a, he was the powerful preacher, the powerful speaker. Who are the powerful speakers that, that you're drawn to, that God has perhaps impacted your life significantly with? Who, who are the ones who, who maybe due to uh, their, their way with the language or, or maybe the way they connect with you emotionally? that God has used, God has formed this special connection. And when you him, hear him or her, that's when you are really glued in. And that's where significant growth is, has occurred under his or her teaching. Well, again, God can use people like that significantly in our lives. They are a gift of God to us, but that can go too far. We can, we can take that, uh, that appreciation of the impact of their teaching on our lives, and we can develop such an exclusive attitude that, that, that soon we, we look down on all others. You know, we start saying, well, they're not preaching today, so I'm going to go elsewhere and not go to church at all. Or, or, uh, or maybe it's a, 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 a preacher that you've heard on the radio or on television. I, I'm just going to stay home and I'm going to watch them on TV instead. Or we compare newer preachers. We compare preachers who, who are, are more rough and burning, like, like Paul, in, in light of this, this, this person, this man or woman that we really admire, and we put down all other preachers like that. That forms, like it did in Corinth, that forms a, an informal faction that, that is divisive to the church. There's no evidence, by the way, that Apollos was intending to do this. There's no evidence that, that, that Paul was intending to develop a, a, a following. This is what we do in our humanness when we are attracted to a particular personality, a particular leader or speaker. There was another faction that said, I follow Cephas. Cephas may not be a real familiar name to some of you. It's the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter, the the leader of of Jesus' 12 apostles. And I got to tell you right now, there's no record anywhere in Scripture that that Peter was ever in Corinth. He may have been, but we have no record of it. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, you know, how is it that a group started to form around Peter, around Cephas, and say, he's the one that I follow, that we follow? Well, again, some backstory helps here. In Galatians chapter 2, you can read about tension between Paul and Peter. Paul represented the, 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 the new, the, the, the Gentile version of Christians coming into the faith. 
Peter stood for the, the Jewish Christians. Peter stood for tradition. Peter stood for the old ways that, that Christ had now been transforming. And it, it's, it's very possible that, that in a city like Corinth, there were, there were new Gentile believers who were drawn more to Apollos and, and, and to Paul, but that there were probably older, more established Jewish believers who they looked to what they knew Peter stood for, and they looked at how he stood for their tradition of, of, of their, their Judaism, bringing that into Christianity. And they, they admired and followed Cephas as the protector of their tradition, of, of, of the one who defends their, their, their values that they brought with them into the faith. Is there a person like that in your life, a protector of tradition? Is there a, a leader? Is there a teacher that you admire for standing for tradition? Is there a particular leader or speaker who defends the values that you treasure? And so that person, that man, or that woman becomes, becomes the one that, that is the standard by which you judge any other teacher, any other leader, and, and you attach an, an unhealthy devotion to that particular leader. Again, we can develop an unholy devotion to godly men and women, ones that God has used as a blessing in our lives. Well, the most curious slogan of the four is the fourth slogan, I follow Christ. I mean, doesn't that sound good on the surface? Isn't, isn't that really what we all should be saying? Well, I follow Christ. Well, again, in the context here, we, we read there was probably more to it than how that sounds on the surface. It sounds good on the surface, but this faction seems to have been saying more than this. And these are probably people, uh, we would call them maybe hyper-spiritual. They are they are people who use the spirituality of that statement, well, I follow Jesus, I don't follow anybody else, to really as a covering, as a shield to say, I don't want to follow any pastor. I don't want to sit under anybody's teaching. I don't want to follow any leader. I want to follow what, what I want to follow. And it's real convenient then to be able to say, well, I follow Jesus. I answered only to Jesus. That's the hyper-spiritual and just as we can be drawn into an unholy devotion to certain leaders and speakers, we can also swing the other direction by resisting all church leadership. But either way, the result in a church is the same. It is quarreling. It is strife that leads to a divided church. So what happens in Corinth happens, or at least can happen, in every church you and I, humanly, we're drawn towards men and women that God has used significantly in our lives. We form emotional attachments with certain men or women that God has used in our lives. And that's good, and that is a blessing. But unless we guard against it, that, that very same attachment can also divide us into followings and factions that fragment the body of Christ, like was happening here. How does Paul address this divisive tendency? We see in verse 13, he, he frames three rhetorical questions. And again, you know, you know what a rhetorical question is. It has an obvious answer, but it's so obvious it's, it's to make you think. It's to make you see that actually, even if that's your answer, that is not the way you're living. That is not the way you're functioning. So here's the three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or you could say, was Apollos crucified for you? Was Cephas crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Obvious answers to each of these questions, but what he's going to do is spend the next couple chapters making us see, making us look at what's right in front of our face again and how differently we tend to live even though we say the right answers to these questions. These questions, by the way, I, I see a structure here that, that plays out in the next couple chapters, and I, I don't really have a good explanation for why it's reversed, but he's going to answer these three questions in reverse order. So if you jump down to question number three, he's going to address that question in the next few verses that we're going to look at today, verses 14 through 17. That second question we'll look at next week. He's going to address that from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3. And that first question he's going to address in in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So let me jump to that last question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Clearly not. What's the point he's making here? Baptism. Baptism, if you've been baptized, particularly if your baptism was close in time to when you came to saving faith in Christ, it's a significant event. It is an event that probably you have some emotion around. It is an event that you probably ask the man or, or the woman who, who God has used to significantly impact you to, to, to be the one that baptizes you. And so it's natural to develop an attachment to that person. Just like, just like the person who perhaps is instrumental in leading you to Christ, it's natural to develop an, an emotional attachment to that. Well, what does Paul say about that? Knowing that that can go awry, knowing that, that that way that we connect emotionally with a particular person whose God uses in our spiritual lives, what does Paul say about this? Notice the, the, the short shift he gives to to his own activity of baptism, verses 14 and 15. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And he later adds one other individual. So that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. What is Paul doing here? He is reminding them and he is reminding me that they weren't baptized in his name to become his followers. They were baptized in Jesus' name to become Jesus' followers. And the same is true of you and me. That pastor who led you to the Lord or who baptized you or God used in some other significant way, that, that, that man or woman was not pointing you to themselves. They were pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their objective was not that you follow them. Their objective was that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is that if you lose sight of who you really are to follow, who you really are to be loyal to, you will miss the power of the gospel to meet the messiness of your life. Because the power of the gospel is not in Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Dan or Jimmy or Ernie or Matt or Rick or you fill in the blank, any other name of any person that God has ever used to significantly impact you. The power of the gospel is in the one they all have been pointing you to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes that very apparent in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize. He did not send me to be the personality at the center of your worship. 
He sent me to preach the gospel, to present Christ to you, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love that phrase, words of eloquent wisdom. That that really sums up your and my attraction to, to people with charismatic personalities, magnetic personalities. We've all had those people in our life. The, the person who can put the words together and, and make Scripture so clear. The, the person who, who, who can deliver it in such a way that it emotionally connects with us. And God uses that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that can be, if we focus on that, that can be nothing more than words of eloquent wisdom. And if our spiritual lives are dependent upon that man or woman that we think has all the right words of eloquent wisdom, then the cross of Christ will be emptied of its power. If our focus is on them, it turns the gospel upside down and empties it of all that it offers to you and me and all that it demands from you and me. So how do we deal with messiness inherent when when we have different groups and and we we have different factions and our our human tendency to to form these. Well, that's something that Paul's going to answer throughout the next couple chapters. But but let me go back briefly in these last couple minutes to Paul's appeal in verse 10 here. There there is a challenge here that, that I think we need, even we, the church at Central, need to come back to time and time again. His threefold challenge in verse 10, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. First, d- don't dismiss this first phrase, that you all agree. That, that I'll tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean we're never going to have any differences because we all think the same. That doesn't mean we're, we're cult-like, and if you don't parrot the very same words that we say, you can't be part of us. This means something more. In fact, I find the the King James, New King James translation most helpful here. Rather than translating it as that you all agree, it translates it as that you all speak the same thing. What does it mean to speak the same thing when we have disagreements, when we have different perspectives? This is quite different from saying we all agree on every single thing. This is really about what Paul teaches elsewhere about what healthy disagreement in a loving church should look like. Here's the reality and the messiness of of church. We, We will disagree on things. We will have different opinions. We will have different convictions. We will have different preferences. But to speak the same thing means, first of all, when I encounter disagreement, different opinions, different preferences, I first individually go before the Lord and I ask, is this really an essential? Is this, part, is this essential to the cross of Christ? Do I have to stand for this or else, or else the, the gospel is emptied of its power? Or is it something less? Is it what Paul calls in Romans 14 a disputable matter? That, that I am called on disputable matters, those matters that are not essential to the gospel, to not pass judgment on somebody who holds a different viewpoint, a different opinion, a different preference on a disputable matter. Let me pick a very common one. It's common in the sense that's the one I hear here the most, but I hear this in almost every church the most. What should our style of music be as we come together as the body 
and worship. Let me just be very clear. That is not an essential. That is a disputable issue. That is something that we can have different tastes on. That is something that we can have different opinions and different convictions. The style of the music, the beat, the volume, whatever. All of that that's wrapped into that. In fact, in a church that has multiple generations, like Central Church, that has the blessing of having perhaps five different generations, we are. It's a guarantee that we're going to come with different opinions and different preferences on that issue. Paul is saying to the Romans and to you and to me, if it is a disputable issue, which it is, then when somebody disagrees with you or has a different taste or different preferences, you do not pass judgment on that person. You, 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 it doesn't mean you have to give up your musical preferences, but it means that you don't judge. You don't pass judgment on someone who has different musical preferences than you do. So how do we speak the same thing on something like our differences in, in our preferences for music and worship? Romans 14, 22. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I, I have my musical preferences, and they're different than some of your musical preferences. That's not where I'm going to spend my, my air, my energy in conversation with you. I want to talk with you about the cross of Christ. I want you to talk with me about how Jesus is impacting and changing your life. I don't want to waste breath. I don't want to waste time on talking about your musical preferences and my musical preferences and how maybe sometimes they don't meet. That's what it means to speak the same thing. We're going to focus on what we have in common. We're going to focus on what is essential. We're going to focus on, on what is really, truly important and on these non-essentials, these disputable items, we are going to keep them between ourselves and God. And bringing it back to 1 Corinthians, that's what it means when he says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I, I love that term, be united. In the Greek, it's this image of even a broken bone being reset so it perfectly fits together. Can you imagine that picture in a multi-generational church like Central where something that maybe has divided us over, over the last number of years could actually be reset, that we could come together without giving up differences? We could actually come together and make a stronger joint. That's what happens when a bone is properly set. That becomes that part of the break becomes the strongest point in the bone. That is not an impossibility. That is the hope of the gospel. That is something God desires to do in the beauty of a messiness of a church. Paul says, but that you be united in the same mind. There, that, that, that really has the meaning of there are things that we should have the same mindset on, the same outlook on. Let me suggest three. These are three commitments I, I challenge all of us, all of us in this five-generation church to make in pursuit of being united in the same mind. How about this commitment? We are committed to something far beyond our own personal agendas and preferences. Yeah, we've got our personal preferences. We've got our personal tastes. They're not unimportant, but we're committed to something far higher, 
And that leads right into the second one. We are committed to the advance of Christ and His church. We want to see above the style of music that particularly may minister to us, we want to see Christ advanced. And so if there's a generation out there younger than us or older than us that, that, that desires a different style of music to reach them, we're open to that. If, if there's a different ethnic group, if there's uh, whatever kinds of groups you can imagine that, that, that take a whole different style of music, yeah, we're, we're open to that. Why? Because above our personal preferences and agendas is this. We are committed to Christ advancing. We are committed to His church being all that He calls it to be. So how do we, how do we decide the particular decision of what music are we going to play today and the, the 11 o'clock service or the 9.30 service? Well, that gets to question number three. We are committed when we actually have to make a hard decision to a biblical resolution of whatever the issue or the problem is. We're going to lay aside our agendas. We're going to lay aside our preferences. We're going to lay aside even the feelings, the emotions that we have around these issues. And we're going to say, let's open the Word. What does the Word tell us is essential? What does the Word say is the way that we're to go about doing that? And as we increasingly honor these kinds of commitments, seeking the same mind, not only will be of the same mind, but we will find that we will more easily come to the same judgment. We'll more easily reach agreement on the particular issues that we actually have to work out to be a functioning church. Let me leave you with this. This is not humanly possible. Messy people can't do this all on their own. This is only possible when we come together under the cross of Christ. When we look to Jesus Christ and His gospel, the message of the cross, verse 18 says, when we believe that that is the power of God, not my personal power, not anything organizationally we can do, the cross of Christ, the power of God for salvation and for living out our salvation. Paul says, to those who are perishing, the message of the, cry, the cross it may seem like foolishness, but as God brings us together, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I wonder, do you know that power of God this morning? Has, has church seemed like a place you just want no part of because of the messiness of it? Maybe this morning the Lord is showing you by His Holy Spirit, no, it's in the middle of the messiness that He reaches and He actually meets you in your messiness. And it's in the messiness of us coming together that God transforms us in a way that He could not if we were at home on our own or somewhere else all on our own. The message of the cross is the power of God to save you and me. And it is available to you here this morning as you turn to Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, maybe to turn back. If, if it's been a while and you veered off the track and left Him, this is where power is. This is where health and healing and wholeness is. Let me pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks not just to first century Asia Minor. Uh, it speaks to us today. We thank You that Your Holy Spirit assures us, first of all, we're not alone. That what we experience in our church experience is what the first century church experienced.
And that while we may see only the messiness of it, you are intending to make something beautiful out of that mess. Lord, I pray that if, if there's someone here who, who needs to get right with you this morning and, and, and allow you to, uh, again, meet them in their messiness, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw them this morning. Lord, I pray if there's someone who, who is ready to take the step of baptism, who has embraced you as Savior and Lord, but uh, now needs to make that public identification, I, I pray you draw them forward this morning to make that commitment. Lord, uh, I pray finally for those who are here hurting this morning. Again, Psalm 34, 18, you are near to us when we're brokenhearted. You save us when we are crushed in spirit. Lord, draw them forward today to find healing from you, to allow men and women to pray over them. We pray all of this, Lord Jesus, in your glorious name. Amen.